Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and good night, folks. Welcome to Karate Without Belts. I'm John, and joined again by Jared Day. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Jared here. Jared, I always screw this up, don't I? Because your your name is Gerard. That's how it's spelled. Yeah. Right, but you always it's like G G E R, and someone with an American inflection would be like Ger. Yeah, I have I have people who mess it up that way too, John. <laughs> but so yeah, you know, in our in Ireland where I grew up, I'm called Jared, and um, the shortened version of that is Jer. Okay. My wife always says it's like like saying chair, what you sit on. Anybody who listens to this podcast, they'll be able to greet me the way my best friends do. Say hey, Jer. <laughs> that the way you want them to greet you? Or sir, <laughs> day of the of, of the northern land. That's it. <laughs> Hey, uh, that's what I'm dubbing you. Apparently, that's how Sama gets translated into English. Oh, really? So when I got a, I got a key from Japan, and I ordered one, and it said "Serve John," and I'm like, "Yeah, about time someone recognized got, my mobility." Got knighted. Yes, me a post. <laughs> the most postal, noble of places. A postal knighted. There you go. <sighs> It's so good. So good. I still have that photo somewhere. <laughs> Very good. Very good indeed, sir. Well, actually, Jerry's back at my request, in fact. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know you You're kind of move heaven and earth and a jungle book with uh, three children. So That's right. It's a conflict management strategy in my house. <laughs> Who'd like to watch Jungle Book again? They're, they're, watching, they're watching right now. Good, good. I mean, I mean, there's multiple versions of that, so you could just make them do some sort of exegesis on which one's the best. In the kind of light of, of recent situations that have been going on, I mean, you know, at the time of this recording, you should be able to kind of piece together what's going on and what has sparked something of a global movement yep. um, from a kind of a very small situation that you know should not have kind of gone to where it went um i think everyone's mo mostly agreement about that the the, the thing that we, we're going to get into today is talking about kind of the stem of situations like this mm -hmm. and i think correct me if i'm wrong here but i think this yeah. is the thing that stems a lot of this and a lot of what people train in karate and in your profession is is about aggression yeah i mean we talk a lot about conflict and aggression is one one aspect of conflict or one result of conflict, you know. So conflict can just be, you know, talking with your friend about which movie you're going to see and, and you want to see one type and the, your friend wants to see another. That's conflict. Most, most of the time we can work that stuff out. But if somebody gets angry about that difference in needs, then, then you're into the, the next phase of, of that downward spiral, which is anger, aggression, frustration. Yeah, and that's when it gets interesting. That's when you have personal safety issues come into it as well. So, no, in in terms of that conflict, I mean, it's kind of there's always that situation, that situation that that sparks that, right? There's always some mm. sort of spark, and that kind of gets to that. Oh, in your studies of aggression mm -hmm. and conflict, is this a rational response or an irrational response? That's a great question. The person who has be, has the conflict kind of growing in them, or that's the, the response is aggression. There, well, there's we talk a lot about triggers, 
we've been talking about triggers for for as long as I've been doing conflict management, which is about 15 years professionally now. Triggers, you know, being triggered is, is sort of a new phrase in the language. It's more, much more common and much more popular. But there are um, certain things that are innately triggering for human beings. Okay, so we talk about, actually, there's a great um, Billy Connolly sketch. I don't know if you know the comedian Billy Connolly, the Scottish comedian. If not, you must. From Boondock Saints. That's about it. <laughs> you need to, yeah. So I can recommend you look into Billy Connolly for some excellent comedy. But um, he, he, he does this skit, you know, on stage where he talks about the Neanderthals or the, you know, the, basically he's, he's making a point about primal behavior. And he says, basically, your brain is just kind of interested in three things, you know, when it's out there wandering in the forest. And, and basically, if, if the, the bushes rustle and all your senses become attuned to what's going on in the bush, your brain just wants to answer three things, three questions. Number one, can it eat me? Number two, can I eat it? And number three, can I have some kind of uh, conjugal relations with it? Okay, so he's, like, so he's just describing the primal brain and, um, and what it's chiefly, chiefly uh, concerned with. So basically, you know, can it eat me? Is, is this thing going to hurt me? And, and then can I eat it? Is the, can this thing bring me, you know, in that context, benefit or or advantage or just calories, right? I mean, we talk about survival. And then of course, this is the other primal drive that he jokes about, which we won't get into. But basically, that, that is the, the first tier of things that will trigger you. Is, is, is this thing gonna hurt you? Or is that creamy jam filled donut on the table actually available to me? Because I could take it and then I'm, I'm like way ahead on calories for the day. So, what, what gets interesting then, and to come back to your question, is what are the other things that trigger people? And my favorite model for this is uh, there's an author out there called David Rock, and he came up with something called the SCARF model, S-C-A-R-F. Okay, so it's, it's nice because uh, it, it fits on one hand, so you've got five fingers, you can just talk about the SCARF model. The S is for status. Status is the feeling I have that, I'm, that I have self-respect, that I am respected, that people listen to me. Or that I am being listened to, and that I, you know, so so a status threat would be being ridiculed, being ignored, being talked down to, being made a fool of, and especially in front of my peers. Okay, so being made a fool of in a group of people who I wish or hope would respect me—that's one of the most catastrophic triggers that a human being can suffer. Okay, so that's the S. I'll go through the others really quickly. Um, C is for certainty. Ooh, you know, yeah. we like things to stay the same. We don't like change. The A is for autonomy. Uh, don't box me into a corner. Give me options. You know, we like it when we have options. I always like to say that some of the most dangerous people you'll ever meet don't feel like they have any other option except to use violence. Right. Okay, so that's the A, autonomy. R is for relatedness. Um, and I'm looking at that spider on the window behind you, Jonathan, like... Spiders and insects are about as far away from being the same as human beings as you can get. And so therefore, most people don't really care if they swat a fly or they squash a cockroach underfoot. But if you ask the same person to, to squash up a cute puppy, which cute puppies have big eyes and they kind of fall around and they're cute. What I mean by that is they're, they're kind of, we anthropomorphize them. They're like, they're more like humans. 
So There's the vast majority of people couldn't do that. So that's a friend or foe scale that goes right. all the way down to fish and insects. And we, most people don't really, except for your vegans. <laughs> most, you know, most people in general, I could say, are character, characterized by, you know, that kind of scale. Okay. So your family's really important to you, your neighbors are important to you, your friends are important to you, and then that scale extends all the way along to things that you wouldn't think twice to hurt. So that's relatedness. And that's why, I mean, you're a teacher, right? So when you go into a classroom, first day of term, you spend a bit of time just getting a feel for what's, what do I have in common with, with these guys? Football, um, you know, surfing, uh, swimming, what, you know, whatever it might be. So, so finding things in common is really important. That's autonomy. Sorry, that's relatedness. And the last, the last component in the scarf model is the the F for fairness. So, we respond on a gut level to being in a situation where we're not being treated fairly. And that's everything from again to give you an occupational example is like maybe you and your colleague do the same job, but he gets paid more. And uh, that just that just triggers a really gut response from every human being on the planet. So that's the second tier. So the scarf model kind of gives us a really, really, really good model for what triggers human beings: status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And in my experience, and I've been using that model for more than ten years. No matter what I'm looking at, uh, in terms of a video of an interaction or a, I might be watching a staff member at a doing some customer service. If I see somebody get upset, I can generally call it off on one of those fingers, one of those domains, or maybe two of them or three of them. Or if it's going really badly wrong, all five of them will be triggered, will be set off. Right. So they're all primal. So coming back to your question, whether it's the top tier, can it hurt me or can I get benefit from it? Those two things are triggering. But then the scarf model is a really good second tier and, and it helps me to diagnose conflict problems. Right. And those are, I mean, those are things that I think, you know, martial arts are not, um, karate are not. Mm. Um, everyone can kind of understand and then, you know, from taken from that kind of stepped back analytical view, how actually it's easier to probably probably interact with people if we had a better understanding of, of how human human triggers actually work. Definitely, yep. But from, and, and from a karate perspective, I feel like we almost don't really factor those things in at all when it comes to any sort of training. We don't really look at, at kind of, I mean, some people do, some people don't, but I mean, majority of the time really don't. Now we're, we're I mean, we build on the topic a little more, but um... no, I, I'm happy to take it from there because I think there one of the things I like to think about when I think about karate training and other types of budo is that, and something you said just a moment ago is like having an awareness of other people's triggers is really key. So when you're in a traditional dojo, let's say, you are taught to be very aware of what's going on. So if a senior comes into the room, everything stops, everybody turns and bows. Some when you're asked, when you're in, in some, yeah, in some. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm way more relaxed than that, as you probably know. But, right. but I also see the value in this kind of hyper uh, aware 
training environment. You know, when we when we line up, you know, we're we're always taught to be aware of who's standing behind and how far away, who's standing to your right and left and how far away. And the lines have to be neat. And I'm, you know, my own nature is not that square. So I kind of look at it and I go, why are we doing it this way? There's the the etiquette of the bowing. There's the deference paid to senior members. There's the senpai kohai relationships. There's lots of things there that make you, if you if you're there long enough, you become aware of the relationships between the human beings. For you know whether whether it's a toxic environment or quite a benign one right. is a different story. And I guess you guys have talked a lot about that on this podcast. But um, <laughs> anyway, maybe it's a topic. How much we've actually avoided that topic. <laughs> but. Um, my point is, I think the martial arts training, while not addressing managing conflict, the the nonverbal elements and the verbal elements of conflict anyway, rather than the physical elements of conflict or the physical collisions, there's there's elements of what we do in a traditional dojo which are helpful, I think, for developing people's awareness of other people's triggers. No, and I could talk then about our own triggers. So how we work on our own triggers, because of course the scarf model, as I just described, applies to, let's say, the other person we're interacting with in a given situation. But it also it also describes how we might be triggered ourselves. Right. I mean, does this feel? I, mean, I hate to just go back. Well, what about this feeling? But like, mm. this, this definitely gets me into that mindset of like, you know, every time you're faced with, you know, that kind of aggression, someone getting in your face, someone calling you out, someone challenging you, someone boxing you in. Like there's that immediate cool heat feeling that goes mm-hmm. through people. That, yeah. like, that adrenaline spike just automatically kicks in. Yep. And it's hard to describe, but I think maybe I'm crazy. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, some have led me to believe so. I think everyone has experienced that in some way. Just that a weird adrenaline trigger that you yeah. actually really can't control that coming out necessarily. Or can you? Um, so I mean, that's that's something I wanted to go, get into as well because there's you know kind of rational reasons for those re- for that to happen, but there's also irrational reasons like like yeah, I mean, status is called out or your authority is supposedly blocked in yeah. when you can't separate that, but your your body will will trigger that. So I think this is where I, I was sort of thinking about this, and I think as a normal person. We're all normal people. As a person just wandering around in society, the amount of things that could happen that could trigger you like that are many, many right. and varied. But let's say as a nurse, a security guard, police officer, or a, a, a retail um, sale shop worker, you can predict reasonably well, actually, what those encounters are going to be. You know, and for that reason, you can predict what kind of encounters you're going to have. And then you can actually, over time and with experience, you can figure out what the things people are going to say to you are that trigger you. So for the, um, and I don't want to be too flippant about this, but for the police officer, one of the things people say to a police officer is, hey, I pay your wages. You know, I pay my taxes. You work for me. Right. Right. So that's a fairly predictable that probably top it's i don't know but different um parts of the world but it's probably top 10 in the uk it could be top five 
things that people could say to you that would trigger you off, that would, you know, give you an adrenaline dump, make you feel like, you know, hurting the other person. Right. And so for that reason, what we always say to people in this part of the program is we sit down for a while and we say, what are the things that, re what are your triggers? What are the things that really set you off? And if you name it and you identify it, you put a name on it. That's the, uh, I pay your wages guy. And you, you prepare yourself beforehand. Then when you meet that person in the street, it has way less effect on you because you've identified it. Um, you understand the effect it has on you. And that kind of, um, that cognition that you've done on the problem beforehand helps you respond at, at much less primal a level. That's and that's, really that's pretty well supported by evidence, I think. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I hate to be that person saying, that's really interesting, but I mean, that it really is interesting because how I can't think how many times I've been in a work environment or, I, you know, I mean, I've been uh, in a lot of different facility, like, uh, capacities in my career. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody, and, and, and hours and hours and hours of quote-unquote training for the job. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a time anyone has ever actually tried to frame it that way, present mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, that in, or in order to get, to get people ready for what they may, may or may not experience. And that kind of training... I feel that it applies pretty much everywhere. It pretty much applies everywhere. You know, so you're a teacher in a classroom. Right. You know, make, make me, you know, is, is one of the things. You, know, so you say, hey, uh, Jimmy, could you sit over there? Because it's closer to the such and such. And the kid goes, what are you going to do? Make me? You know, or um, you, you'll have examples of your own. Um, you can't make me do that or something to that effect. And we can actually pre-plan and practice our responses to those moments. And we can actually meet a novice, a new teacher, let's say, going into a classroom and say, here are the top five things that, that are going to pose you issues and managing your classroom. Or when you meet that difficult student, you know, that, that one that's resistant. These are the top five that we think. And then we can actually, you know, work on the responses that we give those teachers, new teachers. And we can have them practice them. And then I even know a training company in the US that will put an earpiece. If a teacher in a school is having a real hard problem managing a classroom, they'll put an earpiece in their ear and they'll put some CCTV in the classroom and they'll have like an expert tutor sit in the room next door, um, listening and watching what's going on and coaching the teacher through how they should manage that class or those individuals. So it's slightly off topic, but the point no, is, you know, it's, it's training, training, you know, training can really help. I guess that's where we're heading. Training can really help with moderating that primal response that people have to just want to rip somebody's head off. And that also in a lot of ways pulls the pulls. I don't want to say pulls the punch because that's that's really that's really corny. But that kind of take that takes the you know it kind of takes the swell out of the that mm -hmm. that that feeling, right? When you get when that 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 almost kind of turns off that adrenaline, yep. that, that unnecessary feeling mm -hmm. of feeling shocked or taken aback or you know you know adrenaline is a 
you, you're more educated on this than I am, you know, that's a response to, that's a fear response. It is. Yeah. It's a fear response and it's a completely different part of your brain takes over. We, we talk about the, uh, the chimpanzee getting in the pilot seat. You don't want that happening. Well, wow. you don't want that. You can see pretty good chance the plane's going to crash. Right. But, um, and take out a bunch of careers and people with it. So yeah, it, having that pre-planned and practiced response is just so powerful in protecting organizations and teams and individuals. And we might even say societies from the poor effects of bad conflict management responses. I just, as we're talking, I, I remember it's a really favorite topic of mine that I've just barely read about, but back in the 1990s, I think maybe the early 2000s, there was a paper issued in some circles called the strategic corporal. And it was a kind of a, not a doctrine, but it was an idea about how we should train soldiers nowadays, because soldiers nowadays, you know, are going into, if I could say war zones, where lots of the people they meet are not combatants. Most of the people they meet are just citizens of the place that's getting blown up and in the middle of the, the war, so to speak. And the, the second component of this is that everybody's got a smartphone and everything can be broadcast immediately. And the strategic corporal idea was that, you know, the, the, the person in charge of the company or the person in charge of the brigade or the regiment or whatever right. is not going to be the person making the decisions about what ends up on CNN at 5 p.m. tonight. The person making the decisions about what ends up on CNN tonight is the corporal in charge of a three-man squad. And what he decides to do in a given moment, how he responds to somebody in front of him, the kind of almost political decisions he's making have strategic consequences, big consequences, because once it hits CNN, the thing that happened will polarize people. Right. So this whole idea of the strategic corporal means every single person that an organization has out on the streets has the ability through the, how they respond to the people they meet to completely wreck that organization or to poison a whole community or not. And that then becomes a huge responsibility. And how do you make sure people can respond appropriately? You've got to train them. And training people respond like responsibly. Um, we had a little talk about that last time on the podcast about just like responsibilities of, of teachers to their students and how they and how they're teaching techniques. Mm -hmm. A little plug for the last episode. But uh, the uh, how you teach a technique and how you you know, a lot of the time we get the typical uh, the guys coming at you with a right hook and a left jab and what are you gonna do, Johnny? Um, yeah. No one's yeah. ever talked to me in that way. This is our new character, <laughs> 19, the nineteen twenty. Well, no, this is a character that's coming back, the nineteen twenties uh, sensei. Can see here, see he's gonna come out here with a left hook and right right punch. It's pretty much like how most most attack most strategy. I want. To, I think it's the best best way to put it. Not just technique, but strategy is taught in dojos. Is taught in traditional karate classes. Yep. Um, is that strategy is just guy come punch at you. Guy come attack you. What do you with, do? Yeah, with no context. So yeah. the, you know, my questions there are, who are you, right? So guy comes at you with a punch is different if you're a nurse. A security officer in a supermarket in a Walmart somewhere, uh, a police officer in the middle of a riot, um, or a kid in the middle of a school 
school playground. So context then becomes everything. Guy comes at you with a punch, the response is there, it could be different for each one of those people. And I think that's one of the things I, I thought about talking with you today because what's missing in terms of context is also the legal repercussions of what you do. And right. that, that shapes the response, you know? So here's the thing. Let me jump to restraining somebody. Okay. So it's, so I think a question you okay. want me to talk about, you know, I, I studied for several years, very intensively a self-defense method. And really it was about stopping that right, that hook punch, that, that haymaker punch, and then using lots of impact to win the fight. But then along the way, at some point, somebody said, okay, so what if it's your brother-in-law at the family gathering who's had too many beers and he suffers with mental health problems and he stands up in the middle of family dinner, he says, that's it, I'm going to do it. And he grabs a carving knife and, uh, or, or, or he does something else, like he pins it, your, your, your sister to the wall or something. And with all of the relationships intact, how are you going to deal with that? So if it's your brother-in-law and he's just acting out of character for a minute because right. he's drank too much because he just lost his job and there are all sorts of extenuating circumstances, he's off his meds, he's then are you going to, are you going to, yeah, are you going to stand in front of them and drill him in the head, you know? And the, so the, and, and the, the answer there is probably not. So you need to have some kind of less intrusive methods of getting control of that person. And that's where you get into some kind of restraint hold or a grappling maneuver that gets control of that other person without damaging them uh, severely. And I think if I could just extend the point, I think that need has been there in the martial arts all the way back to the very beginning. Yeah. There's always been a need to have both the, or kind of different levels of response, like the higher levels of response where we're impacting somebody and damaging organs and influencing their physiology by kinetically impacting them. But also I think there's always been that, that other view of things, which is if you are the big, roughest, toughest warrior in the community, and then the local drunk who's just down on his luck needs to be put straight, you can't afford for reasons of your position to just lay him out and damage him severely such that he might die. You know, and, you, and the community probably has the expectation of you that you can do that without hurting him. And that expectation is still there today because here in the UK, we had a, the people who investigate the police, you know, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, as it was. It's got a new name now. But they did a study. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've, we've got one. It's, con you know, it's a contentious situation, but we have one. Um, they did a study some years ago that said if, if and, and like one saying, of you results, have a contentious water supply situation versus not having a water supply. So they, they surveyed, uh, oh, your spiders come in. Uh, kind of. Inside. He's on the inside of that window. Okay, back off. Back off. <laughs> Hold up. Back off, back off. There you go. This is spider fight on karate without belts. Um, <laughs> He's actually probably, as you can hear, there's probably there's a bunch of suicidal uh, bugs hitting the uh, window right next to. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> good, good catch there, Jer. Sorry, man. I just looked and I thought he was way too close to your face. Um. Uh, so three times a night, anyway. Coming back to the, the thing I was saying is that they surveyed 
people who had had uh, interactions with the police where use, there was a use of force. And what they found was that, one of the things they found was that if that group of people saw a police officer striking somebody in the middle of uh, an interaction, that they would consider that that police officer had lost control. So my thread of, of thinking there was that all the way from the very beginning, there's been an expectation on people who are really, maybe who are tasked by society to use force. So that's your nurses, security officers, um, law enforcement, to exercise a degree of moderation when they use force. And that, that means they have to know how to restrain people in a relatively safe way. Right, and that's, I, I think, we, we probably, we, between you, you and me, you more than I, because I'm, 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 I'm an idiot in my stool, but I've, I've, at least, you know, I've at least picked up a couple of books on the subject. Mm -hmm. um, you more, you more so, because, you know, it's kind of like the Happy Gilmore thing. I was wrong, you were right. I'm dumb, you're very smart, you're very good looking, I'm very ugly. But the thing we, we kind of come across from the Barnes, you guys have Barnes and Noble over there? Uh, I think we briefly did, but okay. then then they didn't do very well. We have other book, big bookstores, yeah. Waterstones, for example. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, you know, kind of bookstore version of you know, the martial arts section of a bookstore yeah. will have reams of books that almost kind of say say the identical thing to what you just said. That go back and are are pan cultural and pan historical to the point where talking about restraint, and this I mean it's also very funny because going to the to the root to the root of like karate, you know, karate has always been about either if you're talking from a quote unquote moral standpoint or from a technique standpoint, even though this isn't maybe not so widely practiced by People in the, who are in the more in the Genzai, Genzai Budo crowd, mm -hmm. because they generally have to kind of branch out to other martial arts to get their to get their grappling in. Yeah, there's always some idea of restraint, either restraint of the self or restraint of the other. So um, let's let's yeah. use a different word. So I'd like just to make sure we know what we're talking about. I think there's for me to be very sure of the level of force I'm using. I have to moderate my use of force. I think that's a good way to say that, moderating my use of force. So that's what you call that kind of restraining myself. Right. But for me, restraint has a very clear meaning. And, and when we talk about physical restraint, right. that's that's uh -huh. what we mean by grappling the person and immobilizing them so they can't hurt me or anybody else. Which does not always mean, some people would listen to this, not always mean ground fighting. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's kind yeah, of, I mean, they're almost two different thing, things from that perspective. And I think... Some people, when they, they hear the word grappling, it becomes a huge... Rolling around on the floor. Yeah, which is not what we mean at all. We mean restra restraint of an arm. Well, or yeah, leg. interestingly, I mean, let's say a, a lot of the professional situations that I advise and, and give training on are about moving somebody from A to B, uh, from one room in a facility to another room in a facility, or from inside a facility to outside a facility. Right. or from uh, outside a vehicle to inside a vehicle. So it's a lot of a movement. And the last thing you want to do if you're going to move somebody is have them on the floor. <laughs> so it's, it's having them flat on the floor. So you kind of need to be able to get somebody under, um, in, in a lot of scenarios, you need to be able to get somebody under control 
but still have them able to move their own feet and walk from A to B because that's the easiest way to get somebody from A to B. Now, a caveat there is that sometimes if there's enough violence happening, you need to knock them down to the floor, get them uh, under control there, put lots of limb restraints on them, handcuffs and so on. And then you and four of your buddies pick them up and move them that way. But that's just a lot more risky and it takes a lot more effort. So uh, arguably, and it's more dangerous. So um, in terms of karate, I mean, we were talking yesterday just to kind of informally about my involvement with Aikido. And I find myself returning to, to Aikido recently, just looking at some YouTube clips and whatnot as, as I've got time on my hands at the moment. And I'm just becoming really fascinated with the idea that, that a single person would be so effective in, in doing the sort of pins that you see in the Aikido practice. But I mean, it's probably, it's probably a talk for another podcast, uh, another person, but, um, I don't think you're the wrong person for that. Where that? No, you're going in the right direction now. Yeah, where where that where that brings me back to is context. You know, I was looking at some Aikido clips last night. I was like, wow. So he could be impacting this person and using really devastating strikes to just finish this encounter. But the sort of tactical imperative in Aikido is to take the limb, pin the person face down, and make sure they stay there. And I just wondered at what the context might be. And that's a whole other different thing. But when I then turned my mind to the kind of karate practice that you and I are more familiar with, right. I found myself thinking, I found myself thinking about context again. And I think context has to do with who the student is, who's standing in front of you and you teach that person. Right. So, uh, we, we do have evidence. I, I, I read the history. I don't consider myself encyclopedic on it. But we do have evidence of various karate teachers on Okinawa who taught at police colleges or were police officers themselves. A and lot of that had to do with like also just college, you know, things were so kind of cons- constrained, not constrained, but like things were so kind of pushed together as it were, because, you know, like small island, like a small place. Yeah. Like, and again, I think that, that that idea that it's a small place is really important because, again, you, you can't just break people. You can't just break people and put them in a hospital if you're the local law enforcement. And going way back into antiquity, again, I think the expectation was that you could get somebody under control and not just gyakuzuki them in the head and knock them out, break their jaw. And remember, again, I think this point I raised before is that a broken jaw 400 years ago was a really serious life-threatening illness, not right. the least of which that you could be, become infected and you die of, you know, septicemia, blood poisoning, something like that. So the, again, not to belabor, well, I am laboring the point now, but I think the idea that a skilled martial artist at any time in history needed to be able to restrain somebody safely, if, if it was their occupation, is a given point. That's got to be true. Right. Um, and, you know, restrain them to the point where it's necessary. Because I think modern karate maybe has lost this idea to a degree that, you know, if you do hurt somebody, you do end up endangering. Because I, I, I think, you know, your, your, your example of, well, back in the day, if you hurt somebody very hard, then, you know, good chance that person's not going to be able to recover. That's true. But today, with how... Some people live in places where it is harder to recover in different ways, financially, um, mm-hmm. 
not just not just physically. Um, at that time, it was harder to do both. It was much harder to do both. And I think the unwritten consensus, the unspoken consensus on that, is that's the reason why excessive for why excessive force, why complete like complete obliteration of something. The supposedly, you know, explode like five point exploding goat heart technique or whatever, you know, it goes into this weird realm of myth. And this is why people a don't take karate seriously anymore. But you know, it kind of goes in a different direction. But that b, you know, when people are training for for situations, they don't take these contexts into into account. This is also one of the reasons why I've I've heard a lot of people quit sparring. Where it's, it, it, they don't know how to contextualize their sparring, so they end up just beating the crap out of each other, and then you got two guys who got to go to work the next day, and then yeah. And so, you know, how do you? Well, we I think, you know, we, we talked a lot around a lot, but a lot of topics on our last talk, but a lot of it I was trying to explain where we're at in terms of contextualizing training, um, and I I think it can be done in the dojo. It, it starts with having a beginning and an end to the tactics. So if you're doing one and done type training, that's fine. So you're practicing a particular type of, um, re you receive an attack and then you execute some kind of joint lock or something like that. Then at the beginning of that technique, you should have some context for why it's starting the way it is. Um, this person wants your wallet and you try and step away so they reach out and grab your wrist so that they can threaten you so now you've got the wrist grab okay so you just got a little bit of context on the front end you can even build in some verbals to that and then i think there's this really important point i, I want to talk about which is the the end of the technique too so uh, you should build in some what, what um my mentor gary kluwitz at vistelar the conflict management company that i that i that we're partnered with he calls closure so if i take that person's wrist and I execute a wrist attack and they drop to the floor, I then need to figure out how I'm going to end that confrontation. So I take two or three steps back. I show them my hands, my stop hands, which, which is a nonverbal signal to say, stay on the floor because I'm leaving now. Uh, and I might even say those words. Okay, you, you can't have my wallet. I'm sorry, it had to go this way today. But I, I'm leaving now. And I slowly back off. And at the appropriate time, I turn around and I walk for the door. And when I did self-defense scenarios with my people um, over a seven-year period where we ran, you know, a gym that was just focused on self-defense, that's how every scenario went, every practice, because it had to have context and it had to have closure. So let me just give you an, an, an example of what probably really not good training is the, the classic gyakazuki to the head of the person you've just thrown on the floor or swept to the floor. Right. Have you seen that? You know that one where you yes, where it's it's very pretty much you get armbar or get you know yep. said uh, was it kodagash or whatever, and you put them on the floor and then kaboom you you punch them in the face, and yep. I guess the assumption is they're gonna black out, they're gonna, their head's gonna hit the pavement, and you can just walk away. Yeah, with a bit of a spring in your step because you just did the thing you've been training for years to do, right? And then watch our Remo Williams episode. Let let a little fire through it behind you with the stick, and just let your opponent 
blow up behind you. Oh, right. Okay. I have to watch that movie. I saw that you um, you posted something about it recently. I have, to, I have to go back and watch it. It was a favorite of mine many years ago. But the point is, legally, well, when you throw somebody down, it's no longer necessary to do anything else. So if you throw somebody down and they're, if you're, if you're standing and they're lying prostrate on the floor, even for a second or two, you, it's not automatically excessive. But in most cases, it's going to be excessive to then drill them in the head. Um, so, or in the body or wherever, or kick them. I've seen a lot of that too. You throw somebody down and then you stamp on them. Yeah. Like, honestly, that, from a use of force point. Idea, which I don't, I don't quite, I've, I've never quite understood. Again, it's not automatically excessive. And in some okay. scenarios, again, in some contexts, it's going to be okay. But to drill it as a, you know, as a rote learning to as we all did i mean that's how i was taught to do the takedowns right you sweep the leg the guy goes down and you, you punch him in the ground punch him in the ribs when he gets to the ground um i would kind of advise people to think hard about that because we want our learners to be making decisions that are lawful mm. and morally right rather than just acting on instinct because in a in a courtroom you know it's it's going to go badly for that for that person that you taught to do that Potentially. Right. And it goes back to your point of, the, you know, every, everyone's got a camera now. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Everyone's being watched, but also watching. So, you mean, they can, I mean, they can very easily reframe the whole situation and can blow up in your face. And, and I think this also goes into when we were trained and now. And those aren't the same worlds anymore. How, what, how do you think? What's different? Well, A, what I just said, where it was like, people can just take pictures and, 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 and video and mm -hmm. stream that what's ever going on. Maybe not the person you're, who's assailing you or you're mm -hmm. you know, defending yourself against, but that person's buddy. Mm -hmm. But also it was like CCTV, CCTV cameras are all over the place, right? Um, yep. Evidence, you know, maybe there's, you know, you're in a blind spot somewhere. Evidence is all over the place. So again, well, my um, my mentor Gary Kligowitz says, you know, you've got to look good, and you've got to sound good while this is all going on, so so that everybody can see that you're good. Looking good and sounding good is very important. So for me, one of the key things, you know, simple things that people can do is start trying to marry up the words with the actions during during these self protection things that they might do. It's not classical. I mean, you, you never see an Aikido class where they're trying to replicate a street altercation because their practice format is classical. Right. Everything's done in silence. You know, there's, but if you are teaching self-defense, then it's a different type of class format, I would say. I mean, that's the way I would do it. Maybe keep my shoes on, maybe do it in my regular, you know, no belts. Right, Joe? Um, just do it in my regular... Um, street clothes and then take you know and, and take it from there uh, because we know that there's this thing called state dependent learning so there's no guarantee that in that the the techniques that we learn in a culturally different environment with the with the belts and the geese and the mats and the kamiza and the bowing and the everything really nicely arranged there's no guarantee that that transfers easily to that adrenaline pumping moment, you know, when you, you're at the ATM um, on a, and, and it's dark and, uh, and there's steps and there's street furniture and, you know, all this stuff. 
Um, so I, I learned a term recently I really liked. There's, there's the idea of near transfer and far transfer of skills. So near transfer is where the thing you do in training looks almost identical to the thing you're going to have to do in reality. Yeah. So you're, right. you mean you teach you teach English in Japan, right? As far as everyone knows, yes. Okay. So something like that, right? So so like the best kinds of learning that you'll arrange is that where you actually go to a, a bar where the bar bar person. I mean, okay. I I, I used to teach adults in in uh, Saitama. We go to an uh, ice cream truck. An ice cream truck where the person selling the ice cream speaks English. There we go. And everybody's got to actually do the lie, all the, all of the things that they have to do to get an ice cream and start shoving it in their face. That would be the best kind of learning. And and the more you extract away from that into a classroom where there's no ice cream and you're not even using fake money and you know and so on, that then would be a far transfer moment. Right. So the learners got to do so much to get what you just told them into a real life scenario that it's a long distance for them to travel. So assuming they practice want, that even at all. Yeah, and they're not just reading a textbook, you know. Right. Which goes easily over to saying they're not just doing an exercise in the air. Yeah. Yeah, again, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of analogous things there back to our karate practice and, and self-defense practice. So, sorry, I just went off on one. It's it's my big topic at the moment is learning. How do we achieve authentic learning? And um, But it so, fits well perfectly into this because we have, to, we have to get to a point where I think as a karate community, as a karate culture, both people who want to uphold classical karate and a hold up uphold good karate and i think at the, the base of it, it's the same thing mm -hmm. but i think you know like ultimately it needs to do as it always has done change grow learn yeah i think this is a big part of it yeah i, I mean I, I was intrigued recently i watched uh, again with a lot of the spare time i have i i've ended up in a youtube rabbit hole <laughs> where I was watching um, an old Iaido master uh, teaching or, or demonstrating the Iaido kata. And it was really interesting. First of all, and this is mind-blowing, he showed the application first and then the solo representation of it. Hmm. So in Iaido, they, I don't know anything about Iaido. Somebody can correct me. But uh, like 99% of the practice is that getting that solo representation absolutely pixel perfect. Right. And yet when this 10th Dan master was filmed explaining his Iaido, he chose to, to like put five guys around him and say, uh, here's what happens when five guys comes at you and he cut them all down or demonstrated cutting them all down. Yeah, and then cut them down. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. They all fell over at the appropriate moment, so they didn't get caught. But and and then he showed the solar representation. I just thought that was great because what it showed is that for him, his art's practical and functional, even though ninety nine point nine percent of it's just happening in his mind. Right. He's visualizing, you know, the the functionality of it. So so he has a pre plan and practice response to being encountered by five people and the first two want to take him into custody i mean that that was one of the scenarios you can see it quite clearly when he shows it the two guys standing in front of him reach out and grab his arms and the guy behind him yeah 
Yeah, the guy behind him grabs a scabbard, trying oh. to get control, trying to get control of the sword. And then this Yaido kata, which looks pretty funky when you see the solar representation, all of a sudden made perfect sense. So again, it's contextual, it's very functional, and we need to, if we're really trying to get better at all of this, we, we need to just try, try and incorporate those bits if we can. I feel like there's a lot of people in kind of our respective crowds who are starting to understand this better. And I think with our, and, and you know, I'm, again, as I said before, I, I don't want to get political gang, but, you know, there's, you know, things happening in the world right now. And I think how for karate people, you know, it's like, you know, we're just like everyone else. But I think we specifically have, you know, a response to this, which is how do we kind of recontextualize how we go about teaching self-defense, teaching, you know, the traditional arts, while at the same time being responsible and, and being able to take all this new knowledge that we have and, you know, show it to our students in, in new ways. Uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head with what you've said today, Jer. Is there anything you want to kind of add? You can maybe close off with. There's a couple of things that I I thought we touch on, and that I think karate has um, a really well known, maybe poorly understood tenet or value at its core, which is this karate ni sente nash principle. Right. And if you are really thinking about that you know that there is no i mean i know it's commonly uh, translated as there's no first attack in karate right. but you you know there's there's ways you can interpret that which is when i'm when i am confronted by somebody who i might need to fight i'm going to try and make sure that i'm not the person who escalates this yes when i'm confronted by somebody who I think I might have to fight, I'm not the, going to be the one who escalates it. Now, I've never put it in those words before, but again, you you just you know write that down and, and contemplate it for at the moment while the world is burning, and and just extrapolate all kinds of really valuable things, both for your practice and and as a kind of values base for how you take things forward. And um, because if you're a good person, the likelihood is when somebody's getting really upset, and I think the expectation for somebody who's been involved in martial arts for a long time the expectation is that you'll you know you will not automatically respond with violence when somebody is threatening you there's so many of the stories of, from from okinawa you can read them in karate my way of life by Funokoshi. there's so many of the stories where you know master itosu could have really you know taken this young fella and and just ripped him limb from limb, but actually he just sat him down and had a cup of coffee and or a cup of tea. Things worked out, and it didn't. I, I didn't need to get that violent. So th I think there's lots of stories. There's lots in the folklore of karate, and then we have this principle, this kind of maxim that's been handed down, and and it all points to the same kind of moral principle here, which is we we need to try and not get involved in poor decisions about use of force and we need to try and de-escalate things if we at all can because that's that's just the right thing to do so a guardian mindset again going back to my mentor gary klugowitz who's a karate guy himself by the way they're originally a kyokushin kai karate fighter way back 
Yeah, but, talk, um, about, talk about going from one from one space to another. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, you know, we sometimes talk about having a warrior mindset, but it's probably more appropriate for us to think about having a guardian mindset. So a warrior mindset, I will keep myself safe and my people safe. A guardian mindset is I'm going to keep everybody safe. Which is the proper translation of Poodle. If we're really looking at that country, that's a proper translation. That's exactly right. And I keep everybody safe by trying to achieve a, a peaceful resolution. You can achieve a peaceful resolution by knocking everybody down too. I mean, let's, let's face it. But so that's the choice. But I, I just wanted, yeah, that, that was something I thought was um, probably going to add to the conversation. That's a mindset that we don't have anymore. I feel like, you know, if you, I feel like you, especially we tend to get, and this is, this is where I don't, I personally don't feel where the sport element enters in at all um, to our training. I think, uh, you know, we had a couple conversations about full context writing and kind of the necess necessity of that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, needing to understand uh, that that tool, that very valuable tool we have as as karateka in the tradition, and you know why people don't really understand it and stuff like that. But it's not about this great sport element of being overly strong and overly aggressive, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm wrong in saying that we may have in an attempt to kind of compete with MMA, kind of what kind of where we kind of diverted from. We yeah, I mean, I would, I would say this and that because I've got young kids. My eldest is gonna is she's ten, right. and um, I can see how getting her involved in sport practices, sport karate practices now, is going to be really good for her for all kinds of reasons. And so I, I'm not totally against it. I mean, I, I came up through the, the kind of sport karate thing when I was about that age, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Right, right. And, not uh, and, necessarily that, but more of kind of like the super aggressive, so like the super aggression we tend to see with kind of what's going on more with kind of overly full contact fights and they don't understand proper sportsmanship and it's all about what yeah, the Anywhere where you where you see it turning toxic, it can turn toxic when you've got a bunch of ten year olds. I mean, depending on what you're telling them to do, right? You know, it can turn toxic because of their like that. You know, just at the level of sportsmanship and so on. So you can have a a really positive environment where people are doing sports karate, and you can have a really toxic environment where people are doing sports karate. And and so that's kind of where I'm at on that. I don't know that sport in and of itself kind of destroyed karate or anything like that. I don't know if I'm even qualified to talk about it, to be honest. But for me, it's not so bad as long as the kids. Right. And, you know, overwhelmingly, it's children are involved in the sporting aspect of it, I would say, or at least from my perspective. I know that there's like the K1, the kickboxing and all that. But if we're just talking about karate, I, I think it's, it's perfectly fine for them to be involved in that, especially if it keeps their interests until... Yeah. Further on. And, and, and I guess my spin that more positive is like, how do you take that and then spin it into that more kind of make sure everyone's safe perspective? Because yep. generally that's always seen as, you know, let's get in, in, you know, the positive aspect of that is that there is really, there can be very good sportsmanship. 
mm-hmm. and actually the attempt to break up fights and, and things like that. Mm. Uh, there's also kind of that negative downturn of everything's about money, everything's about yeah. uh, the win and stuff like that. And more how I think is is just more like there's a toxicity coming in from something else that maybe karate people want to try to emulate and it's not in the dna of ultimately it's not really in the dna of karate to 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 take that 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 in there's other toxic parts that are unfortunately kind of in the heritage but that's neither here nor there yeah yeah i think i think you're right i think i i could agree with that because i've been fortunate i haven't really seen you know any any really toxic environments where sport karate has been taught, but it, it just could just be different. We just might have a different. We don't, we don't have a huge um, full contact scene here in the UK. Never have. It's always been more along the WKF side of things, point sparring, you know. But you're right. I think there. You know, I'll, I'll have a think about it. Let's let me put it that way. I have a think about the connections between conflict resolution and sports karate and what the how they might be, you know, un- incompatible. It can be, but they, I mean, it's, you know, everything, everything is, is open to potential, right? Mm-hmm. That it, can, it can be a, a great tool for good or it can be a terrible tool for, you know, not good. I think you said it really well, whereas, you know, we need to become, have more of a protect everyone mindset than just protect ourselves or just protect others. Make sure everyone's all right. So, mm-hmm. cool. Isn't there, isn't there uh, that, um, principle that says strive for the creation of a peaceful and free world you might you might have a better memory for it than i do by using the character building morality and spirituality found in a way of kind of that right that's, and that's there. the same it's and there it just kind of gets it's like it's right it's like reading the catechism like just people just people read it off and they don't really care for those of you who had to go through that and when you you were younger Yes. So, I mean, I think hopefully we can start using, you know, because just thinking about these times, what can, I, what can we do as people who are representatives of this to, to do better for our communities? And some people are doing really well. Talking to some of them right now, and hopefully we can talk with them. And I know, Jerry, you were doing really well. Um, I've always been a benefit to your community. So uh, thank you so much, sir, for being on. Um, anything else you want to kind of get off with? No, no, I, I am, I am all done. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, and great questions, very um, stimulating questions for me to think about the crossover between my, you know, professional life and my karate practice, and and uh, it's it's been great to have this chat with you. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Jared, for being with us, and um, thanks for everyone for listening, and don't forget to keep training. <laughs>